The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Uh, in the afternoons on Sunday and throughout the week, he has an office here. And, uh, and a, a while ago, they came to us and said, we'd like to contribute to this project, this building. And uh, they had an idea of making Korean food. And many of you a week ago enjoyed that Korean food. Well, they went and way above and beyond what I thought they would raise. And uh, I asked if he would come and just present it to us this morning. So, Pastor Sehun, God bless you. Yeah. And thank you so much yeah. for that effort. Amen. God bless you. Take care. Let's give him a hand. <clears throat> Last week, we um, announced the art project that's going on. Uh, we gave you a piece of paper like this. And there's more at the Welcome Center. And it's a self-instruction there on how to do that. You go home, you think of a scripture and something that you want to characterize this new season of growing together as God's people and, um, and then hand it back in. And um, we're looking forward to a piece of art coming together as all of us are involved. And uh, as I preach, you're going to see a piece of art come together that Lisa is working on now. And at the end of my message, I'm going to have her come and share with us as well. So this is kind of a multitasking. Maybe, maybe it's hard for some of you. And uh, once in a while, if you want to pay attention to the sermon, that's not a bad idea, too. <laughs> and so we'll see how this goes. We may never invite Lisa back. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, God is good. And it's so good to see him praised in all kinds of ways. I had planned on sharing with you this morning, because various people have asked about, what about the faith works discussion? I mean, what about the fact that, yes, grace is all very important and good, but, but yeah, there's something we've got to do here, right? And, and so that has been a tension throughout this study in the series on Galatians. And I just want to give you three things that I will come back to before we finish the study in Galatians, and I don't have time to unpack them further this morning. But first of all, I want you to see that in the three ways I would respond if I had time, number one is you have to always have, in, the te- integrity of Scripture is always very important, and so you ask the question that the author of the Scripture is answering. Okay? Now, the author Paul in Galatians and Romans is not asking the same questions and answering them as the author James is in James chapter 2. And so you cannot compare them the same way. Paul is, is asking the question, answering the question, how is it that we can be right with God? And uh, he is clear about grace by faith alone. And James is asking the question, can a faith that has no works save? Okay? Galatians chapter 2. And uh, you can look at that in verse 14. I'm not going to go into it now, but that's number one. You let all of Scripture interpret all of Scripture. You cannot lose yourself in one passage or one doctrine. Just like we believe that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and the doctrine of election must not be toyed with. And yet at the same time, the Bible says, whosoever will may come. Now you don't mess with one or the other just because in your little brain you can't hold them together. Okay? And it's the same with grace by faith alone and works. And so the integrity of Scripture is number one. The second thing I would say to you is that the intent of faith is also so important to remember. What is the intent of faith? 
Is it just some kind of prescription for fire insurance after you die? Is it some kind of a, of a mental intellectual ascent? Or is it intended to transform your entire life so that now you belong to Jesus Christ? And again, we could go into that, but I'll reference Titus 2.11. For the grace of God appears and brings salvation, and it says that it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and every worldly desire and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So obviously grace is a better teacher than law. The grace of God has appeared to teach us to say no to all ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Don't ever think that law, guilt, imposition of rules and codes is a better teacher than the grace of God. That's number two, the intent of faith. And number three, I would say, is the instruction of history. And I was going to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer at this point. I'll go in the future. I will come back to this. You can read it for yourself, The Cost of Discipleship. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer compares cheap grace to costly grace. And he says that cheap grace is the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. And it's very important that we understand ourselves in what stage of history are we. And I love that Bonhoeffer, when he writes that book, in 1937, he was executed in 1943, I think. And, and, and he says in there, quoting back, he says that Martin Luther, when he, when he, when he led the Reformation in Germany was in a very different climate than, than, than they're in. And we must understand that. In so many ways, Paul, writing Galatians, is responding to a legalism that was so rampant through Judaism that was being imposed upon the early church. Even as Martin Luther stood up at the age of the Reformation and was responding to a Roman Catholicism that was so legalistically bound... So we must understand the age as well in which we live. And I can't go further than that, uh, but that's where I'd like to leave it for this morning. When we do get to chapter 5, we're going to come back to understanding the faith works conversation in context. <clears throat> Amen. I remember the first time I ever killed a living thing. I was hunting with my father near Geraldton, Ontario, where we have a hunting cabin. We were hunting for partridge, and that day I didn't see any partridge. And I was about to pack it up and head back to the cabin, and um, a little bunny rabbit walked across my path about 30 feet ahead of me. A little white bunny rabbit so far, so good. <laughs> and I had a 410 shotgun in my hands, and I really wanted to shoot something. <laughs> Strange. I was a young man, and just early, first time getting out there and hunting, really. And, and so I raised my gun, and I, and I shot just above the head of this little rabbit. And one or two or three or four of the pellets must have hit him, and he, he went down. But he didn't die. 
And so I, I ran up to where he was, and he was laying on his side. And you know what rabbits are. They have one eye, one eye on each side of the head. And so one eye was looking right up at me. And I had to take out my knife and kill this rabbit with my hands. Now, why do I share that story? Later that evening, we had rabbit stew, by the way. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't have a lot of stomach for it. Have you read Leviticus lately, folks? I'm asking you seriously. Have you opened up the Old Testament and read a book like Leviticus lately? There's blood on every page. There's not just a little bit of blood on every page. There's a lot of blood on every page. Full heifers that are slaughtered, goats and lambs and sheep and, and doves and pigeons. Daily in the temple, blood poured out with flow under the wall. And, and then come to this time of the year and the Passover and the Day of Atonement. Oh, oh the priests were so bloodied and busy all day long, morning till night. And the blood flowed because the animals were offered as substitutes for the people. And you see what so often would happen, it was prescribed in the law of Moses that the people would come up to the temple and they would go to that place, that altar, and they would put their hands on that goat, on that bull. They would put their hands on him and then the priest would slit the throat and the blood would bleed down the altar. You see, there was a, a transference of guilt from my sin to that, that being substituted, and it was being offered in my place. That's what I think about when I think about that first hunting expedition for me. And then we get to the New Testament, and we read the Bible, and John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching repentance and faith, and he sees Jesus coming into the Jordan River. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He didn't just say, behold, the Lamb of God that covers the sin, that, that sort of covers it for now and points forward to a, a more sure sacrifice that's coming. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Our sin is dealt with. And that's what's at stake as Paul is writing Galatians. He is saying that you must understand this is not just a, a temporary substitute that is, is, is for you, that Jesus Christ, God has literally put all of his wrath and curse upon Jesus and has put all of the blessing of God upon you, undeserving as we are. Now last week when we studied chapter 3 in Galatians, I shared with you that it's like a mountain range with three peaks. That's what Paul is describing. He is showing the peak of Abraham and and he's showing the peak of Moses, and he's showing the peak, the highest one, of Christ. And each of them represent a covenant that God made, but there's no contradiction here. God is always relating to his people by grace and through faith. 
And, I, and we asked the question last week, why use Abraham and Moses as, oper- as, as examples? And I said to you last week that Paul uses Abraham because when God found Abraham, he was a Gentile. There was no Jewish nation. He was the father of Israel and the nation of Israel. When God found uh, Abraham, God poured out his grace by faith upon Abraham. Abraham didn't have to do anything to be right with God. It was because of God's faithfulness. God made a covenant with with Abraham based completely on faith. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Guess what? The Judaizers in the Galatian churches were saying that the Greek and Gentile people had to do in order to become a Christian. They had to be circumcised. Well, guess what? The sign of the covenant, the promise made to Abraham was made before Abraham was circumcised. You see, because Abraham, it says, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's what you and I need to believe. We need to believe in Jesus Christ and we are made right with God, not because of anything we have done, no church attendance, no offering, no gift to the poor, no no life lived in a wonderful code of ethics. No, it is only because of what Jesus did that any of us will ever be in heaven. And so we see in the scriptures this picture, this picture of God's ministry of mercy through Abraham before he was circumcised, justified before God by faith alone. And then he begins later in, in Moses, talking about Moses indirectly through the law. Why Moses? Moses was a rescuer of Egypt, of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. And he was the one that led them out of Egypt and from slavery and organized them in the wilderness. And he brought them right up to the edge of the promised land. But he didn't enter into the promises. And it's a picture that Paul is painting. Paul is painting the picture of this is what the law can do, folks. Try to obey the law and it will lead you right up to the edge of forgiveness and heaven and all that God has for you in his promises, but it will not lead you in. That's what the law's purpose was. And so last week also we spoke of the doctrine of imputation. And the imputation, not amputation, the imputation is this idea that all of my sin was imputed, put into Christ's account. It's a bank account kind of word. And, and so that then, if, if all of my sin, past, present, and future, was put in Christ's account, then, well, then what does that leave me? It leaves me at a zero balance. It doesn't give me positive righteousness. It gives, doesn't give me a new nature to not sin anymore. It simply leads me to a zero balance, but that's, not, that's only half of the story. The other half of the story is that all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to my account. So there's a substitution that takes place, and, and I receive all of the righteousness of Jesus, all the promises God made, the, the Father made to his Son, and he receives all of my sin. That is the way that God, a holy God, can keep his integrity and at the same time declare you and I righteous. Not pretend righteous, righteous in his sight because someone else paid the price. And Jesus Christ died 
alone on the cross, abandoned, because he became the curse that you and I were. That's the theme of Good Friday this Friday as we gather in this room. The theme of Good Friday this year is alone. I hope you can join us that day as we share the Lord's Supper, as we remember what Jesus did alone so that we would never have to be alone. So imputation is the way that God deals with sinners. And now let's look today at the scripture that we're going to be considering. And I'm going to be following the same three mountain passes. Uh, And so we'll begin with the covenant that God gave to Abraham again. Because in verse 15 of Galatians 3, you'll see that Paul goes back to Abraham again, and he says, I'd like to use a human example. And the best way that we could use this human example for us to understand is to think about your last will and testament. Maybe you haven't written one yet, but, but that's the best way to understand this human example, because the word is, is a covenant, a, a will, a statement. And the illustration kind of needs some clarification, because you see, in Roman law, And in Canadian law today, you can change your will after it's been written and ratified and signed. But in Greek law, which many people believe Paul was referring to, once it was signed, it could not be modified, revised, changed in any way. That's one way of interpreting this. Another way of interpreting it is simply to say that either way, whatever law Paul was thinking of, Roman or Greek, certainly we know that Nobody else can change your last will and testament. That once you have signed it and you have died, no one else can change what you have written. And so much more when it's God who did the covenant with Abraham. Nothing else can be changed. You can read about that covenant-making ceremony that is found in Genesis 15. We're not going to go into it. It was a literal way that covenants were formed in the ancient Near East, a, a, a bull or a heifer would be, would be cut in two, and the two parties would pass through the middle of those two split, the animal split in two. And they would ratify a covenant with the blood of that, uh, that animal. The interesting thing about this, and again, it's too much detail to get into, but when this happened in Genesis 15, Abraham was sleeping, and God alone passed through, because it was by faith in what God stated, not because of anything that Abraham did. And so, in verse 17, we move on, and we see that the word, the number 430 years is mentioned. That's not the time between Abraham and Moses. That's the time that Israel was slaves in Egypt. And in that time of enslavement, God finally raised up a deliverer in the name of Moses. And Moses was the one that brought about the law. The law of of God to his people came through Moses. And that was not so that the first promise to Abraham would be annulled, because you don't annul a will. Someone else can't do that. Moses could not annul the the will, the, the, the covenant that God had made with Abraham. This is the logic that Paul is explaining in chapter 3. I like the way Timothy Keller states it. He says this, he says, if, you, if I give you something because of what I promised, it is not because of your performance. 
And if I give you something because of what you've done, it is not because I've promised it. Paul is adamant. Either something comes by grace or by works. Either it comes because of the giver's promise or the receiver's performance. It can't be both. And that's the point that Paul is making, is it's, it's all by the grace of God. Let's move on to talk about Moses, that second mountain range. <clears throat> now why then, in verse 19, Paul asks the question, why is the law given then? What is the purpose of the law? And he answers it right away by saying, it was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? There's several interpretations of verses 19 and 20, and I can't get into them, but again, I think Paul is staying with this idea. The best way of us understanding it is to think about a last will and testament. In anybody's last will and testament, there is, it is left in the hands of safekeeping with, with somebody, and it's called an executor, isn't it? In this script, scripture, it's, Paul uses the word mediator or intermediary. And this executor of the will, in the scriptures that we're reading, it says that, that there's, there's two. There's angels and there's Moses. Both angels and Moses are the executor of the will, the covenant that God made with Abraham, whose seed is Jesus. Not plural, seeds, but seed. Paul makes it clear in the scripture. And so what is he describing? He's describing that God the Father made a covenant with Abraham Abraham is the, the one that is given to, and Abraham's seed is promised all of the will, all of the, the benefactor is Jesus himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, 2, uh, Moses talks about the fact that when he was up there on Mount Sinai getting the law of God, that there were thousands of angels that accompanied him. And so Paul is painting a picture here that, that when the law was received on Sinai, there were angels there, and there was Moses that walked down the mountain with the law of God in his hands. And, it, and so the mediation of the will, the covenant that God made, was between angels and Moses to the people of Israel. That's the picture that he's describing. But again, the, the point of the law being given was not to create another means by which we could be saved. It says in verse 19, it, it was added because of transgressions. John Stott says this, he says, the function of the law was not to bestow salvation, but to convince men and women of their need for it. Martin Luther writes this, he says, the principal point of the law is to make men and women not better, but worse. The law makes you worse. Why? To show you your sin, that by it, the knowledge of it, we might be humbled, terrified, bruised, broken, and by this means we may be driven to seek grace and to come to that blessed seed, that offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, by faith. And so Paul is describing that the law was added simply to draw attention to how far we fall short, how much we miss the mark. On a very practical level, perhaps we could say that God has to show us our need for grace before we will understand and pursue that grace. We could be living in a, a willing and deceived delusion that somehow 
We have a code that we're living up to that is good enough for God. That's what we humans can be like. We compare ourselves to the next person and we think, well, I'm not as bad as him. And so therefore, I must be acceptable to God. But God has given us the law so that all of us can see that we fall so far short of the perfection that Jesus, that God requires. Have you ever come to a saying or heard a saying, maybe even used it yourself, and then one day you realize that's not a true saying? I had that experience recently, a couple weeks ago. And the saying that I, that I realized, I think earlier in my ministry, I might have preached this saying. I might have said this. And now I see it is absolutely wrong. And the saying is this, God will never give you more than you can handle. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of people that have said that. God will never give you more than you can handle. Really? Do you really believe that? I don't believe that. And I bet you there's, there's several that could give testimony today that would say, oh yeah, I got way more than I can handle. Oh yeah, I went through a dark valley and it was more than I could handle. And if it was not for the grace of God and the caring of family and friends and the faith I have in the living Jesus and, and the hope I have for my future, I would be not here today. I don't think it's true. <laughs> that God does not give you. And I believe, I believe the law of Moses is a case in point for why I believe that. Because guess what? How many of you can live up to the law of Moses? We don't come even a fraction near the perfection of the law of God to live up to that standard. You and I don't even live up to our own standards if you really think about it. You see, the, the, the law of God is proof positive that that statement, God will never give you more than you can handle, is a lie. So why does God give us sometimes more than we can handle? Because he's got to show you that you need him in your life. He's got to show you that you cannot live according to your own strength or wisdom or ability or code. He's got to take you by the hand and show you. God gave the law precisely because it is more than we can handle. And that's why the way of faith is opened up to us. And the law of God does its work when sinners see their sin and run to the Savior, Jesus. And we misunderstand the whole point of the Old Testament law if we just try to double down and try harder and be better that's not the way it is. So often then what legalists do is they fine-tune the rules, they redefine sin, they look at the externals. It doesn't even come close to the righteousness of Christ. And so in verse 21, Paul asks the question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, he says, Unequivocally, He says, no, of course not. God's not saying in one generation this and another generation this. No, the simple fact is the law had to be revealed. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed by the law. But the implication is, but of course there is no law that could give life. Why? Because there's no law that God could give that we could live up to that could say, okay, now you're righteous in my sight. And so we come to the third mountain range, and that is, of course, Christ. Verse 22. 
Paul's logic is completely consistent. I want you to know that. I know we've been driving fast through this, but Paul's logic is completely consistent. And he comes to verse 22, and then he says this. He says, therefore, the Scripture has imprisoned everything under sin. Think about that. Have you ever thought of this as a prison? Have you ever thought that way? That the Bible, the Scriptures are a prison. That's what Paul's arguing. Paul is saying, therefore, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What a picture he is painting. The Scriptures were given to imprison us all into the standards and expectations that none of us could ever live up to, not to condemn us, but so that we might see that we need to take the door of faith in the grace of God. Everyone on earth is either living in the Old Testament or the New Testament, either de deriving a religion from Moses or Jesus. You can pick which one you're going to try and live by, but you are either going to be under the law and condemned, or you're going to be in Christ by faith and saved. Now there's two metaphors that I want you to note in chapters chapter uh, 3, verses 23 and 24, and these are powerful pictures that Paul paints. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. There's two metaphors. The first one is that the law is like a prison guard. And the law takes you, it shackles you to the prison wall, and you are held there on death row, condemned. The, the law is like the prison guard that every morning you get up and you, you awaken, he's right at the, the cell door, and he's saying, you're in here because you deserve to be in here. And in a few days, you're dying, and you deserve to die. That's the prison guard. That's the picture of the law. It's imprisoned us, and, it, and we're ready to walk down death row to the gallows. The other picture is the guardian. Now, the guardian is a picture of a person, usually a slave of a wealthy family in the Roman period, and the slave that was trusted would be entrusted with the young boys that had to run off to school early in their childhood. And this person, the guardian, the tutor, the schoolmaster, is the person that was entrusted with the child to, take, to make sure that they get to the school, they get to the teacher. And once they got to the teacher, they were no longer on. And so there's a picture here, two pictures actually. There, the first one is the guard that is leading a, one, all of us because of the law condemning us to death row. And all of a sudden, as we're on the way, a door of faith opens. We thought we were going to die, but then a door of faith opens, and, and we realize that somebody's taken our place. And the other one is this picture of the, the schoolmaster, the, the tutor, the mentor, the guardian, who supervises us only until we get to the teacher. These two metaphors are incredible. The supervisor leads us to Jesus Christ and is no longer needed. The law of God leads us to see our need for grace and faith in Jesus, and it's no longer needed because now we have a relationship with the one that's going to teach us the law. 
And so we see in the scriptures this picture. What a picture of parenting. Think about it, you who are parents. What a picture of parenting. The goal of child rearing is to instruct and to teach and to pass on the values of the Christian life. So that when, when it comes time that they leave the home and you're no longer, they're no longer under the rules of the house, that they continue walking in the path that they were taught, Christian values. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it, Proverbs 22, 6. Galatians 4, 19, we're going to come to in a few weeks. Paul says, my dear children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says, until Christ is formed in you. Not until you are conformed by the law to some external image. No, he says, until Christ is transformed, formed in you. The metamorphosis word is used. And that's the difference between the law way of making someone righteous is conformity, and the Jesus way and the grace way of making someone righteous is being transformed, metamorphosis. But for every child, including us when we were younger, for every child there comes a moment of truth, doesn't there? For every child there comes this point in time when they finally are out on their own and they're going to be out on their own terms as well. And they decide the rules of the house. And they decide how they're going to live. What will be the result? Will they cast off restraint this, this chain that has bound them for 18 years after having come out of the supervision of their parents, the guardianship is now done, or will they be so trained by that time of the rules of the house that they now feel that they're not imposed, they're embraced? Ah, these rules have led me like a guardian but now I want to choose to follow them and live by them by grace. I have a relationship now with God my Father and I want to live the Christian life not because I'm under my parents anymore or their faith. Someone said God has no grandchildren. <laughs> God has no grandchildren. If all goes well, that child has been raised, will no longer need to be coaxed and coerced and guilted or pressured into some kind of obedience. Come on to church. Put your money on the offering plate. Serve the poor. Do this, do that. No, no, no. It's not about that, folks. Law is not a good teacher. Grace is a good teacher. They'll do it not because their parents want them to do it, but because... Of, of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. They'll do it not because they've been delivered and freed from something alone, but they've been delivered and freed for something. They've been delivered and freed for something. The grace of God appears and gives us the ability to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and controlled lives uh, until we await the coming of Christ. I want you to know this morning I had a I'm going to invite Lisa to come up in a second, but I want you to know this morning, I had a, a time about a year and a half ago, and I was at a retreat with uh, the pastors of our association up in Gimli, and I, after the first evening of teaching, I had this experience where I had a kind of a vision, 
And I just felt as though the teaching was so rich and so important to me. And I had this picture of me walking up to this huge castle, but the doors, the big wooden doors were closed. And I walked across the drawbridge in my mind, but, but these big wooden doors were closed to me. And I shared with the teachers that night, Wes and Gill, about how I've been, I've been up to this castle before. I've heard this teaching about grace before, and, and I've wanted to enter in more and more, but, but somehow the doors are always closed. And, and Gil said to me, he said, did you ever try pushing on the door? And again, it's a vision. It's just a, a picture. But then he shared with me, you know, the prodigal son in the story expected that when he went home, his father was going to be ripping mad, and he's going to get a pound of flesh. He's going, to get, he's going to get some discipline. But what did he find? He found a loving father waiting to receive him. And I found that to be very instructive for me that night when I heard him say that to me. And, and since that time, when I have come to the Lord, I have expected to find him ready and waiting I've expected to find, actually, that he left the door open for me. That by faith, faith is, maybe faith is the, the hand that reaches out to push the door open. Because God left it for you. And then when you open your heart to this grace that forgives sin, past, present, and future, you also can enter in to the castle. You, you also can enter in to the promises of God. You know, there's only one that's written into God the Father's will as a beneficiary, and it's his son, Jesus Christ. And, and if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you get all the blessing that goes to him. God the Father pours it out on you. And God the Father gives you the key to the door. And God the Father wants you to come in and fellowship with him. This morning, is there someone here maybe that, that needs to take a step toward that big castle door? Is there someone here this morning that needs to just push on that door and walk through that door, trusting that regardless of, of how bad or how awful you've been or how, how unfaithful you've been in your, in your walk with God, He's ready to just let you in because of what Jesus did, not because of you. It's completely because of what grace has given you. You simply need the step of faith to walk through that door. I'm gonna pray for you, and then I'm gonna invite Lisa to come up and share with us a couple words. Lord, I thank you that you have been here. And Lord, even as the worship team and Lisa share at the conclusion of this service, I pray your Holy Spirit will stir our minds with the things that we need to think about. That instead of feeling like your castle, your presence, your heaven, your grace, your presence is, is off limits because we're so vile, we're so unfaithful, we're so inconsistent, that we would recognize we have a place at the table that we're invited in by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ, your Son, alone. And we've been written into the will because of you, Jesus. How good you are. Would you bless us as we celebrate that freedom 
that we have in Christ. Amen. Lisa, would you come? Do you have a question for me? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. I I wanted to ask you what the experience of painting this this picture meant to you. What does it it portray to you as it concerns especially the scripture that we've been looking at? Um, Well, we talked earlier, um, Mm -hmm. Kevin mentioned earlier that this is sort of like, um, well, like painting is another form of worship. Art is another form of worship. And... Uh, for me, it's important because I never knew as an artist how I could use my abilities to mm-hmm. worship God, and yeah. I feel like this is a great opportunity to be able yeah. to do that. And the painting itself, I um, drew a lot of inspiration from the scriptures we talk about in yes. Galatians 3, and yeah. um, where it talks about the uh, law kind of be- making us a, like a prisoner. Mm-hmm. And um, Amen. I mean, you can kind of read it too as like, you know, breaking free of uh, the shackles of sin too, Amen. but it was more so about like how we're we're free from the law, Amen. and um, you know uh, the the hand of Jesus reaches down and offers yeah. that that uh, branch and that freedom, and Praise we're um, completely f- free in Christ. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much, Thank Lisa. Let's, let's give her a hand. Thank you. Let's respond to the the truth that we heard today and also the art that was uh, created in worship of God with with worship in this way as well. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is nothing about what we've talked about today that is just for now. You are forever ours. I thank you that we can know that for all of eternity that we will have you with us. And this morning... We worship you. We say, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us. Thank you that you have done that. And I pray that as we enter into this week, as we move forward towards Good Friday and Easter, that you would use this time, please, to continue to transform us in gratitude and in worship of Jesus Christ the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior and our friend, and it is his name in which we pray. Amen. Hopefully see many of you at 1030 on Friday as we have our Good Friday service together. Have a great week.